um, recently I thought was really cool. Um, this is John Piper, and the first time he ever preached at the church he used to be pastor of, this is what he said. He said, the source of my authority in this pulpit is not my wisdom, nor is it some private revelation granted to me beyond the revelation of Scripture. My words have authority only insofar as they are the repetition, unfolding, and proper application of the words of Scripture. I have authority only when I stand under authority. My deep conviction about preaching is that a pastor must show the people that what he is saying was already said or implied in the Bible, and I might add, by Jesus, okay? If it cannot be shown, it has no special authority. My heart aches for the pastor who increases his own burden by trying to come up with ideas to preach to his people. As for me, I have nothing of abiding worth to say to you. So I'm saying to you guys, I have nothing of abiding worth to say to you this morning. Does everyone understand that? Do you ever hear me? Okay. But here's the cool part. God does. And of that word, I hope and pray that I never tire speaking. The life of the church depends on it. So um, let's pray, okay? Um, Heavenly Father, I just, I come before you right now. Um, and God, I want to work out my salvation with fear and trembling because it is you who works in me to work and to will according to your purpose. God, I, I'm with fear and trembling because I don't want to do this on my own. I can't do this on my own, God. You are working in me to work and, and to will. And God, I want to get out of the way. I want to have you be the source of power and, and, and impact in my life and the lives of those that, that I interact with. God, I even want you to be the source of love for other people inside of me, Jesus. I want to be so obsessed with, so satisfied by, so intimate and close to you all the time that it just, it changes everything, Lord. And so I just, I, there's nothing that I can say to these people, God, so I need, I'm desperate right now. And I pray that you'd make them desperate, Lord God, to show up in this room. And I pray, Lord God, that you would, you would display your glory through the pages of your, of your word, through the things that, that we say, and that we're, even as we're processing, God, display your glory to us right now and open up the eyes of our hearts, Lord God, not just so we can see it. God, the devil sees your glory. The devil saw your glory, but he doesn't treasure it. God, we need hearts opened, softened, cut into, Lord God, so we can treasure your glory, so we can see your infinite worth and treasure that because it's ours. And I just pray, Lord God, as we get into your word, you would open up the eyes of our hearts, Lord God, to hear these things and, and to change us. God, we want to be like you. We want to be with you. So God, do a work this morning in the name of Jesus. So I'm going to read one more quote to you guys because I read this and I've read it before. Um, and actually, I posted part of this on Facebook the other day because I love it. Um, but I'm going to read it again. Um, this is Ian Thomas in his book, um, The Mystery of Godliness. And I'm like three chapters in, and I'm like nerding out so hard. Um, he says, The Christian life can be explained only in terms of Jesus, Jesus Christ. And if your life as a Christian can still be explained in terms of you, your personality, your willpower, your gift, your talent, your money, your courage, your scholarship, your dedication, your sacrifice, or your anything, then although you may have the Christian life, you are not yet living it. If the way you live your life as a Christian can be explained in terms of you, what have you to offer to the man who lives next door? The way his life, the way he lives his life can be explained in terms of him, in terms of him. And so far as he's concerned, you happen to be religious, but he is not. Christianity may be your hobby, hobby, but it's not his. There's nothing about the way you practice it which strikes him as at all remarkable. There's nothing about you which leaves him guessing and nothing commendable of which he does not feel himself equally capable without the inconvenience of becoming a Christian. 
I think it's really challenging for me when I've read that, but it's also, and the reason I'm bringing it up is not to, to challenge us. It's, I really want to encourage us. I need more shelves. Um, because in that is implied a promise that there is more to our Christian life than what we're capable of. And for me, that's super encouraging because what I'm capable of is somewhere down there in the fibers of the carpet, not even above the carpet, it's somewhere deep in the fibers of the carpet. And what God has for us and can do in us and through us and for us is it would blow our minds. Like I think we would just literally explode if we could fully comprehend all that we have in Christ. And I'll give you guys, this is just kind of cool. It's blowing my mind. This is, this sermon has sort of technically been in the week in the work since, what did I say, May? That trip. I was on this trip, and I think I told you guys about it. Remember when I told you, like, I hurt my back on that trip? But I had, like, this ridiculous joy, like, this doesn't even make sense. People think I'm crazy because my back hurts, but I, like, keep laughing about it. <laughs> like, who's that psycho guy over there? That trip, I started reading the passage that we're going to be reading today, and the Lord started, like, teaching me some of the things, these things. And it's like every week he's been teaching me more and more and more. And I think it was after that Mike said, you know, I'd like to have you preach. And God was like, That's, this is the passage. I was like, oh, this is intimidating. But this is so exciting because God's been showing me so much. This morning, Marla was praying, and she basically gave, like, the outline of the entire sermon. So the worship team's good. <laughs> we learned the song, Yes and Amen, which the bridge talks about what we're going to talk about this morning, which blew my mind because it was like, I didn't know we were learning it. And then we started learning it. I never heard it before. Heard the lyrics. I was like, God, this is so cool. You're teaching me more. But then we learned it this week. And I was like, oh, my goodness, we're doing the sermon the same week we do this song. Anyway, it's just really exciting because the Lord is doing something. God is sovereign. God is moving in ways that, like, they're literally blowing my mind. So I read that pat or that that quote to you because I'm excited. Like, I'm so excited for what we're going to look at, and I'm so excited for you guys because I I know that there are hard things going on and there are hard things you guys are up against, and that is the devil trying to rob you. But my God is sovereign, and the devil can't touch that. Even the stuff that you're going through right now, watch, because God is going to use that and turn it around to do something amazing and bring you greater satisfaction and joy in your life than you could ever comprehend. And that's the devil's attacks that he's using to do that. Isn't that so cool? Isn't that so cool? Jo I mean, just the, like Joseph, like that's the kind of like the picture that I see sometimes when I'm like seeing what you guys are going through, because it was hard, 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 impossible, impossible, impossible. And then God used those situations to save the nation of Israel to bring us Jesus, okay? If the nation of Israel had starved, we wouldn't have Jesus like he promised. Joseph went through these horrible things. God attacked him and attacked him. Give up on God, give up on God, give up on God. I was like, okay, yeah, play your games. Satan, I got this. Joseph, I got you, buddy. And he did something amazing, and it's just so cool. So let's just read. Uh, Hebrews 4 is where we're at. I'm going to stop. I'm going to use up all my time nerding out about the stuff we're going to look at without looking at it. Oh. All right, actually, go to Hebrews, Hebrews 3. We're going to start with verse 15. <clears throat> okay, so as it is said, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion. For who were those who heard and yet rebelled? Was it not all those who left Egypt led by Moses? And with whom was he provoked for 40 years? Was it not with those who sinned, whose bodies fell in the wilderness? And to whom did he swear that they would not enter his rest, but to those who were disobedient? So we see that they were not able to rest or enter, they were not able to enter because of unbelief. <clears throat> Therefore, while the promise of entering his rest still stands, let us fear 
lest any of you should seem to have failed to reach it. For good news came to us, just as to them, but the message they heard did not benefit them, because they were not united by faith with those who listened. For we who have believed enter that rest, as he has said, as I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest, although his works were finished from the foundation of the world. For he has somewhere spoken of the seventh day in this way, and God rested on the seventh day from all of his works, and again in this passage he said, they shall not enter my rest. Since therefore it remains for some to enter it, and those who formerly received the good news failed to enter because of disobedience, again he appoints a certain day, today, saying through David so long afterward, and the words already quoted, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. For if Joshua had given them rest, God would not have spoken of another day later on. So then there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God, for whomever has entered God's rest has also rested from his works, as God did from his. So all of that leads up to this. You guys ready? Let us therefore strive to enter that rest so that no one may fall by the same sort of disobedience. For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and of spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. Isn't that awesome? Yeah? All right, so here's what I'm going to do, okay, for the sermon. I'm going to go again through the passage, and I'm going to just point out things I thought were interesting, and I'm going to ask a billion questions, okay? Does that sound good? Just things as I was reading, they like, these questions came into my head. God, why did you word it that way? Why did you say it that way? What's this about? What's going on? Okay, so I'm going to ask a bunch of questions, and then we're going to, we're going to dig in, and we're going to find some answers, and I think it's going to be super exciting. You guys ready? Yeah, no, yeah. I have answers. I'll ask questions, but we're going to find answers in the scripture, okay? I'm going to try to show you guys, okay? So, going back to the beginning. Um, as it is said, today, if you hear his voice, don't harden your hearts. That passage he keeps quoting is in Psalm 95. So, as I was reading, okay, I'm kind of curious. What's that psalm about? You know, what's he saying? What's the context? So, we're going to look at that later, okay? Another thing I'm going to kind of point out as we go through this, there are a lot of logical connectors in here. I don't know if that's a technical term, but that's what I call it in my head. Things like for, therefore, so that. And honestly, I'm really trying to like understand Hebrews. I'm going through it and it's wicked confusing because he has a billion of those and they like, they're all over the place. So he's building this huge chain of logic through like the whole book and everything's connected and it's like, oh, my brains. (laughs) But I think we're going to find some really cool things in here. Okay, so I'm going to kind of highlight those a little bit as we go. Okay, so don't harden your hearts. Four, all these guys hardened their hearts, and what happened? They didn't enter the rest, right? So we don't want to harden our hearts because we don't want to be like them because what happened to them was bad, right? Does that make sense? A couple of things I want to point out. Look in verse 15. Do not harden your hearts. He uses a couple of things to describe the people, okay? In verse 15, he says they hardened their hearts. <clears throat> Excuse me. They hardened their hearts. Does everybody see that? Yeah? Okay. Now look in verse... 18. What were they in there? They were not able to enter the rest because they were disobedient. Did everybody see that at the very end of verse 18? Okay, so 15, he says they had hard hearts. 18 says they were disobedient. Okay, 19 says why were they not able to enter the rest? Because of unbelief. Okay, I thought that was interesting because I was like, God, why did you word it that way? Because you seem to say like the reason they couldn't enter the rest was because of, and you say three totally different things because they had hard hearts. Well, actually they couldn't enter because of 
um, because of disobedience. Actually, they couldn't enter because of unbelief. Why does he word it that way? Why does he, why does he keep saying it? What do you guys think about that? I'm not going to answer it yet. All right, keep going. Chapter four, therefore. So what he's saying is all this stuff. We don't want to be like these guys. They didn't enter the rest that God had for them. So because of that, because of this idea I've just made, therefore, while the promise still stands, we don't want to miss it. They missed it. I don't want to miss it, right? This is a big deal. Okay, so that's like, that's raising a bunch of questions for me because, okay, what, that was the promised land. The, the, the rest that they had was the promised land. What does that mean for me? What is he getting at here? I don't want to go to Canaan. I want to live in Florida. What are you saying, God? What's the deal here? Okay, so then he says in verse two, four, good news came to them just as to us, but it didn't benefit them because they had no faith. Okay, so now we're getting deeper into this. Okay, they, 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 they responded wrong because they had good news given to them right? Which was, I'm assuming as I'm reading this, the promised land. We'll look at that, okay? Okay, that was the good news they had. They didn't have faith. So that's like, that's a fourth thing now. They had hard hearts. They disobeyed. They had unbelief. They didn't have faith. Okay, I think like, it seems like God's painting a picture here. Okay, so, okay, cool, whatever. Keep going. Verse three, four, we who have believed enter that rest. He's now drawn a correlation between the promised land and the rest that the author and somebody else has. Does that make sense? Okay. So what is the promised land? What is it about that that correlates to the rest that we can enter in right now? God, I'm getting like kind of confused, but kind of excited because this seems like you're doing something here. Could you be building a Christophany, like a Old Testament picture of Jesus that we get to look at now? We'll get to that in a minute. Okay. Um, so we're going to keep going down verse six, since therefore it's another, it's another big deal. So all this stuff, the promised land somehow correlates to the rest that we have faith, obedience, belief, soft hearts, all that somehow plays into this. Therefore it does remain for some to enter it. And I skipped verse four. So he's talking about verse four. He says, God had a rest too. So that this is, Super confusing to me as I'm reading through this. Okay, so our rest is like the promised land. Well, verse four, somewhere he's spoken of the seventh day. So God has a rest too. So what are you saying? Which rest is it? Somehow the rest of the promised land correlates to God's rest on the seventh day, which somehow relates to our rest. And then I don't know if you guys, you guys remember at the, at the end it said there's a Sabbath rest for the people of God. So there's like, he uses a lot of terms for this idea of rest. Okay, so it seems to me like he's using a lot of different like analogies to say we have a rest without like explicitly laying out all the details of said rest. So it's like, okay, keep in mind, though, he wrote these to Hebrews, right? The Hebrews, the Israelites of that day would have known a lot of the stories that we're going to look at. Okay, so for him in saying all these things, he was probably painting a very vivid picture for these people, provided the Holy Spirit was opening their hearts to hear, you know, but we're going to get into that because I want us to be able to have the vivid picture that he's painting here. To me and to you guys, this may seem super confusing because it's like, author of Hebrews, like, which one is it? Is it the promised land or is it the, the Sabbath rest or is it God's rest on the side? I don't know what you're saying right now. We'll get to it. It'll be exciting. It's super cool. Okay, so I'm going to go down to verse 11. All of this, let us therefore. So again, he's building a case. All of this stuff leads up to this, okay? Guys, 
you need to enter this rest. You need to fear lest you come short of entering this rest. These guys didn't enter that rest. <laughs> these guys didn't enter the rest because of all these things. Please hear what I'm saying. Strive to enter that rest so you may not fall by the same sort of disobedience. It seems really, really important that we enter this rest. For verse 1, he says, fear lest you fall short of entering that rest. Verse 8, or uh, verse 11, it, he implies that there's a risk here that if you don't enter this rest, you could fall by the same sort of disobedience that the people that didn't enter the promised land, and we're going to look at this, they fell because of the same disobedience, because of the same, those four things. I don't think anybody in here wants that to happen to them, Okay. I'm not trying to make anybody be afraid right now. What I'm trying to communicate is this is serious, okay? So don't read this passage and be like, well, you know, this would be cool some days. This is serious. And he's trying to make this really strong point. This is serious. Don't miss this. This rest is important. Don't don't skimp over this. Don't skip to like the good parts of here. Like if you have a favorite part of Hebrews, I don't know if you have a favorite part of Hebrews, but this is important, Okay. And what I'm going to get at is I really feel God has given us a really cool picture in here of what this means and that this is for us and this is a promise and this is for believers. Now, there's a rest for us. Doesn't rest sound exciting? Like, doesn't that just sound good? Yes, rest. Enter that rest. He doesn't say like enter it and get out. It's not like come in and come out. It's enter. We as believers have a lasting rest that by his language here is not future while the promise of his rest stands, let us enter it right now. Right now. So this isn't even talking about, oh, heaven. Well, I'm going to make it to heaven, and I'll, I'll rest then. No, like this is important. Are we going to get that this is important? I feel like I've, okay. All right. Um, but then this part has always hurt my brains forever. But in preparing this sermon, God showed me a really cool verse, and it like kind of opened it up for me, and I'm really excited to share it. For the Word of God, verse 12. For the Word of God is living and active. Every, like That's our favorite, you should read the Bible because, right? Verse. Why on earth is it in here when it's talking about rest? That makes absolutely no sense to me. Can we please like put a chapter heading there or like skip to chapter 5? This doesn't make sense. This, doesn't, this hurts my brains. It's there for a reason. I want to know why. You guys want to know why? Yeah. yeah. Okay. All right. So this is what we're going to do. We're going to start. We're going to go to Psalm 95. I want to hear what the deal is with this chapter that he keeps quoting. And we're, we're going to look at this a little bit. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> All right, so we're going to start in verse 6, okay? O come, let us worship and bow down. Let us kneel before the Lord, our Maker, for He is our God, and we are the people of His pasture and the sheep of His hand. I love that. Today, if you hear His voice, do not harden your hearts as at Meribah, as on the day of Massah in the wilderness. I'm just going to stop for a second. He said just wilderness, in Hebrews, we're getting a little bit of a deeper picture here, Massah and Meribah here. Okay, and we're going to look at that in a second. <clears throat> when your fathers put me to the test and put me to the proof, though they had seen my work, 
For 40 years, I loathed that generation and said, they are people who go astray in their hearts and they have not known my ways. Therefore, I swore my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. One, this is kind of, kind of be a springboard into looking at these passages about um, the water and the rock, which is what those, those two locations reference. The other thing I just want to highlight is in verse 10, they have gone astray in their heart and they have not known my ways. So my challenge to you guys is one of my challenges to, to us this morning is, do we know his ways? And I'm not talking about, do you know how to live the godly, holy Christian life? Okay. They had the law and the commandments. Okay. Those people had the law and commandments. He's not just talking about, okay, you don't know my rules, guys. They, God made sure they knew the rules. Like people died if they didn't know the rules. Okay. They knew the rules. They didn't know God's ways. They didn't know how he operated. They didn't understand his heart for them. They didn't understand how he does things. And I think that's going to be key for us this morning. If you're coming in this morning and you don't know God's ways and you have that kind of twisted up in your brain, it's going to make it difficult for you to be able to respond to the Lord the way he wants you to respond. It's going to be difficult for you to trust in the Lord the way he wants you to trust. Okay? So real quick, um, go to Exodus 17. We're going to go through these quickly only because I just want to touch on them because we have other things I want to kind of get at. Water from the rock. I don't know if you guys recall this story, but this is, um, this is, they've just crossed through the Red Sea, okay? They're, they're in the wilderness. They're on the way to the promised land. They are already complaining against God, saying they wish they could go back to Egypt because they are thirsty. Oh, Moses, why did you lead us out here to die in the desert of thirst? Why did God do this to us? <laughs> we watched the Studio C last night, and it's like making fun of that. Is this man a gluten-free is that free-range quail that God gave us? Like, they're already complaining. God just delivered them from 400 years of slavery, parted a sea, delivered them through, and then buried all of the things that held them captive at the bottom of the ocean forever, which is such a cool Christophany, too, because think about that. We're baptized into Jesus, and everything that held you captive before is buried at the bottom of the ocean, dead forever, dead forever. Can, that, can those horses, like, come up out of the water? No. Okay, the ocean crashed down on them. All the things that held them in bondage are dead. Anyway, in this passage, um, I'm actually not going to read it because of time, but you can see it, and, and if you want to put that in your notes. Here, God says, okay, Moses, I hear them complaining. I hear them distrusting me. I want you to go, and I want you to strike the, the, the rock at Horeb with your staff. He, and this is so cool. He strikes the rock, and water comes gushing out. The water, or the rock, was stricken to provide provision for the people for what they needed. Does that remind you of anybody else who was stricken? Jesus? Oh, it's a Christophany. The rock. He struck the rock so that they could have water to live. Jesus was struck for us to live. Isn't that cool? Now, this is why this is, I think, really, really important. One, the people's hearts are they're wicked and stubborn because they will not trust God. They're out in the middle of the desert. God just did miracles that blew their minds. I mean, all of the plagues, the ocean, everything. God did all that to, yep, he, yep, to lead you out in the desert and kill you by thirst. That's logical. God definitely works that way. They didn't know his ways. They're out in the middle of the desert and they thought God was going to kill them out there. 
They didn't understand God's way. No, I'm not going to kill you out in the desert. I just saved you so you could live life abundantly, which is us. How many times have I, like God comes through in big ways and I come into an impossible situation and I reckon that situation according to what I am capable of. They couldn't get water. There was no water source. There was just sand. How many times have you gone into a situation and said, man, I can't do this. Why would God bring me into this situation? You're so unfair, God. You know I can't do this. You couldn't do any of the other things that got you here either. Right? This should have been a red flag for them. Guys, they did not know his ways. And anytime we're in a situation and fear comes up, anxiety comes up, stress comes up, you're questioning God, bitterness is starting to like rise up in your hearts. I'm going to challenge you. You do not know his ways. Does that make sense? God doesn't bring us into impossible situations so we can reckon according to ourselves. Okay, like Ian Thomas was just saying, if your life can be explained in terms of you, you're doing it wrong. Okay? God led them in the desert so he could show them that he's a God that provides. I am a God that provides water in the wilderness, springs in the dry land, right? That's who God is. Now, I want us to go um, to Numbers 20. So that was um, that was one, of, and I got a little bit confused on this, and I'm still looking into it, but I think that was Massah, although he does reference both. But this is explicitly what we're going to look at here is Meribah. And I'm guessing it might be the same location, but anyway, um, those words mean um, quarreling and um, something. So um, testing, quarreling and testing. Now we're going to skip ahead. They have not gone into the promised land. They've rejected the Lord and God has kicked them back into the wilderness again. And that's where we pick up here with this. Um, Numbers 20, Verse 8, God says, Take the staff, assemble the congregation, you and Aaron, your brother, and tell the rock before their eyes to yield its water. So he told them to strike the rock, right? Nope, read it again. Tell the rock. <laughs> and then if we skip down, um, verse 11, Moses lifted up his hand, and he struck the rock with his staff twice. How many times in your life have you come into a situation and God has said, my provision is enough, and you try to go through the sacrificial system again? That rock, that rock was already struck. That punishment was already done. That price was already paid. That sacrifice was already made. Why on earth are you coming to God, striking yourself, trying to make up for, trying to get back into where you were before? Tell the rock. Come to God on the right standing you have in Christ Jesus and his accomplished work on the cross and stop trying to take his place. That's not for us. The rock was already struck. Now we come and we talk to the rock. Now we come and we say, Jesus, I'm in the middle of the desert and there's no water here and I can't do this. He doesn't need to be struck again. That's already done. It's done. We come and say, Jesus, I can't, but you can. Did everybody hear that? I can't, but you can. 
And it's done. It's done. Moses, at this point, and I can understand because he's probably super frustrated. But even here we can see God tells Moses explicitly, you will not enter the promised land, Moses, because you refused to uphold me as holy, as set apart before these people, and you did not obey what I told you to do. I told you to speak to the rock, and you didn't trust me. You got mad at the people, and you focused on them instead of on Jesus, and you struck it. And Moses, in that, had the same heart that the people had, and it kept them all out of the promised land. Joshua had to be risen up as the next leader, and he led them in. <clears throat> so we're, we're going we're gonna to move ahead, okay? Um, I want to look at more at this idea of, of rest, okay? So go to Numbers 13. I'm going to read verses 30 and 31. So we've seen thus far, God has done amazing things for these people and they've refused to trust in the Lord. Even Moses got to a place where he, he lost some level of faith and trust in the Lord. And I want to understand better what that faith and that trust is because we talked about those four things earlier and I, I want to be able to unpack that a little bit. But I just want to read to you really quick somebody whose heart was not in that position, okay? Because when they came to the promised land, they sent spies in to spy out the land. These guys brought in a bundle of grapes that was so big and heavy, two grown men had to carry it on a stick to get it back to the people. Not Walmart bag of grapes, like Mike Eberhardt-sized grapes dangling from a pole. (laughs) That's a lot of grapes. Those are some big, juicy grapes. That was the land that God had promised them, okay? This is what Caleb says, verse 30. Caleb, and the people are freaking out, by the way, because the spies come back. Caleb and Joshua are like, let's go, guys. This is what God has promised us, period. Everybody else says, there's giants in the land. We can't, they're, they're too big for us. This is what Caleb says. He quieted the people before Moses and said, let us go up at once and occupy it, for we are well able to overcome it. And the men who had gone up with them said, we are not able to go up against the people, for they are stronger than we are. Again, they are reckoning by the wrong source of power here. Okay? We're going we're gonna to move ahead. Deut- Deuteronomy 1. I want to I look at this even further. Verse 29. <clears throat> then I said to you, do not be in dread. This is Moses talking to the people. Do not be in dread or afraid of them. And Saxon, so I'm going to show that picture here in a second so you can get that, can you get that ready. Deuteronomy 1. 29. Then I said to you, do not be in dread or afraid of them. The Lord your God who goes before you, talking about the ways of the Lord, he goes before you, he will himself fight for you, just as he did for you in Egypt before your eyes, and in the wilderness where you've seen how the Lord God carried you, as a man carries his son, all the way that you went until you came to this place. Yet in spite of this word, you did not believe the Lord your God who went before you in the way to seek you out a place to pitch your tents and fire by night the cloud by wet, by day to show you about what way you should go. All right, Saxon, can you bring up that picture? <clears throat> this was last night. Um, and it was interesting. Like, I asked Kate to take the picture because of something she said. We came home, and Cooper was freaking out for no reason. He had been freaking out and being super fussy all day. 
And we came home, and I was getting irritated. And I had snapped at him several times throughout the day and was constantly having to, like, apologize for being mean. Um, but God told me when we got home, stop being frustrated. I want to give you my heart for your son. I want you to just pick him up and hold him. Fussing, screaming, fussing, screaming. I picked him up, and he stopped. And he just kind of, like, melted into a puddle of cuteness in my arms. And he's not asleep there. He wasn't asleep for like the 30 minutes that we were sitting there. He wouldn't go to sleep. He was exhausted, but he wouldn't go to sleep. He was safe in daddy's arms, period. This, I think, is part of the rest that we have right now. Your spirit should be in that little baby's position, but instead of my face, it should be God. Our spirits should be in that position at all times because we are safe in his arms and it doesn't matter what's going on because we're, we're safe. And at one point he even said that. I was like, Cooper, I've got you, Bubba, okay? You know that I love you. And he said, safe. He says safe a lot because he asks it as a question. Safe, safe. He heard a loud noise. Safe, safe. It wasn't a question this time. And that like broke me. I started crying. <laughs> Cooper, daddy's got you. You know that I love you, right? Safe safe. That's God's heart for you. God's father heart for you. Safe. Are you resting right now in those big, strong, way bigger than my arms? Are you resting in that, in those arms? Can you say, safe? Period. Doesn't matter what's going on doesn't matter how the day is gone or tomorrow looks like, can you say, safe? Um, I'm going to keep going, okay? Deuteronomy 6, and don't turn there because I'm just going to read it to you guys, and I want you to listen to this, okay? Um, I'm trying to understand what this rest looks like, right? He keeps referencing the promised land. What is the promised land and what is that about that that somehow correlates to what we have today, okay? In Deuteronomy 6, verse 10, it says, When the Lord your God brings you into the land that he swore to your fathers, to Abraham, to Isaac, to Jacob, to give you with great and good cities that you did not build, and houses full of all good things that you did not fill, and cisterns that you did not dig, and vineyards and olive trees that you didn't plant. And when you eat and are full, then take care lest you forget the Lord who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. The rest that they had in the promised land was going to be this abundant life they did not build for themselves. It was a life that was already built, waiting for them and given to them. But, and this is the thing I want us to notice, that is awesome. But that is not the point because he makes it clear at the end of this passage that that is not the point. But be careful so that you do not forget what? The Lord. Okay? The point is not to bring you into the promised land so you can enjoy these good things in and of themselves. Ever. Okay? And I'm going to challenge us as a Christian today. God does not give us things like health, relationships, the longevity of life for our children. He doesn't even let us meet our children sometimes. 
He doesn't have money or a job or caffeine or food or marital love or fun. Those things he gives us sometimes, but they are not the point of life. They are not why we're here. They're not the goal even. And I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to even say, and, and I could be wrong, and if I'm wrong, I, I apologize, but I'm really starting to think that even heaven will have all those things, but that's not the point. It's not. They're secondary. God is the point. God is what it all leads up to, which means if God is the treasure and God is the thing that all of this is leading up to, what's going to happen when you lose your health? your loved one, your baby, your job, a relationship, stuff, money. That will be hard, and there will be sorrow, and there's weeping for that. But that's not your treasure. That's not what you're here for. And what we're going to get at is that's not what brings you satisfaction. Okay? None of these things will make you happy. Okay, so losing them should not rob you of your happiness. Even in the midst of sorrow, there should be some level of joy. And I don't exactly know how that works. I feel like I got to taste that a little bit on the trip when my back was hurting. God allowed my health to be taken away and comfort to be taken away. But there's still this weird joy. And I think part of it had to do with satisfaction in Jesus <clears throat> so we've kind of looked at, we're getting a better picture now of what this rest looks like. But he says that this whole idea of not hardening your heart, having a soft heart, obedience, faith, all this stuff somehow is, is the key to getting that. What is that? Okay, so <clears throat> let's go to First John 5. Five three says, For this is the love of God that we keep his commandments, and his commandments are not burdensome. For everyone who has been born of God overcomes the world, and this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. Okay, that's interesting. Go to John 14. <clears throat> John fourteen fifteen says, If you love me, you will keep my commands. Okay. Obedience was key in that passage in Hebrews. And these authors are saying that faith is key to obedience, which we kind of saw in the passage in Hebrews. And love is somehow key. Okay, this passage in John 14, it does not say, it's not like some guilt trip. Okay, if you really loved me, like the mom guilt trip, like, like or the dad guilt trip, because I've, like, I've done it with like, if you guys just, if you loved me, you wouldn't put me through this, right? If you loved me, you would do this, okay? And I'm sorry, I shouldn't have said that. That was mean. I'm sorry. Um, well, the mom's forgive me for being mean. 
Thank you. <laughs> it's not some guilt trip. He's not saying, if you really love me, you would do this. He's saying, let me let you guys in on a secret. This is how the kingdom of heaven works. If you love me, you keep my commands. So if you're not keeping his commands, what does that mean? I don't love, but I do love you. You can't say that. No, no. He just did. And I'm not saying you don't love the Lord. You're like, you hate him. It's some like extreme thing. But he's saying, this is a promise. If you love the Lord, you will obey. That's exciting for me because I've tried to obey and it doesn't work. And now I'm seeing, oh, my heart's not there. There is an area of my life where I do not love the Lord. There's another piece to this though, because he says faith is somewhere key in this. And we have an idea of, of faith and trusting. So somewhere in the mix of this, our love for God and our trust, and I'm going to define a little bit more distinctly than that. Our love and our trust births obedience. If you're pregnant like my wife is, and her body is ready to deliver that baby, that baby is going to come, period. <laughs> Doesn't matter where she is, it, that baby is coming. Birth will happen. If you love the Lord and you have faith in him, obedience will happen, Okay. So let's, let's keep going. Okay, so we're getting, we're getting an idea here. So my question is, faith, obedience, it's somehow tied up. Great. How do I get that? I don't have that. I, I don't. Like, there's not obedience in my life. There's not this faith that you're talking about. What do I do? You're saying I need love and faith. So let's do five things that can fix your heart. No, it <laughs> doesn't work that way, right? And <laughs> so here's what we're going to do, though. This is, I hope this blows your mind, because my brains were all over the dining room the other day. All right, Deuteronomy 30. I love the book of Deuteronomy after this, because it's like all these awesome passages are in here. Uh, all right, Deuteronomy 30. Okay. Verse 6. I can't. Like, this is so cool. <laughs> 30 verse 6. And the Lord your God will circumcise your heart and the heart of your offspring so that. Why is he going to circumcise their hearts? Why? He answers it. So that you will love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul that you may live. Guess what? You can't circumcise your own heart. Who does that? God does that. Okay, now this is where I freaked out. In Hebrews, what does it say is living and active? Then what does it say it's sharper than? What do you circumcise with? A knife. Where's the word? Small sword. I hope it's a small sword. <laughs> Circumcision is cutting something off. God has to circumcise our hearts so that we will love him. If he circumcises our hearts, we will love him. The word of God is living and active, and it's sharper than any two-edged sword, and it cuts us open to love the Lord. And we're going to get into faith here in a second, but we're seeing now, I mean, we're seeing how this love for God is leading into this passage in Hebrews we have to enter this rest. It's super important. If we don't enter this rest, we run the risk of falling like they did because of the disobedience in our hearts, the lack of faith and the lack of love in our hearts, as we've already seen. So 
strive to enter that rest because, why do we strive? Because the word is active. It's living, it's active, it's working to circumcise your hearts. What does it do? It's able to discern motives. It's able to discern heart issues. Where's your treasure? Where's your satisfaction? God just took away your health and you were cursing him for it. Or at the very least, in your mind, there is this secret bitterness that you're holding against him. God, you're not being fair. Let the knife come and circumcise your heart because you've got some treasure growing there that doesn't belong. And I think that's really exciting that we can come to the Word. And here's, here's the part that we're going to get into. It's not just come to the Word so that God can show you what's wrong with you and fix it. We'll just we'll keep going. I'll get in that in a second. Hebrews 11, 1. I'll just read the passage so you can see it. <clears throat> now, faith. All right, so we saw what, we know what love is, and we know how to get it now. Circumcision to the heart. We can't do it. God has to do it, okay? Now, what about faith? What is it? How do we, how do we get it? Faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. In Hebrews 1.13, this same word for um, assurance, some of you guys might have like essence of things hoped for. In Hebrews 1.13, Jesus is the exact um, representation of God's essence. It's the same word, essence, that's in here. Faith is not just trusting in those things. Faith is those things. It's the essence of them. And I think what he's trying to get at here, faith is not just trusting that we have what we want to be satisfied in, in God. It's tasting it. It's not just, okay, I know that God satisfied. Because what, what do we hope for? I mean, what are we all hoping for on this earth? I want to go to heaven and be with Jesus, right? As believers, We've been set free from our sin, not for that in and of itself. The sin was just in the way to bring us to Jesus. Jesus is the goal. And we're going to look at that here in a second too. Jesus is the goal. He's what we're hoping for. Intimacy with him is what we're hoping for. Faith is the assurance that I'm going to get it because I've tasted a little bit of it right now. And I've tasted and seen that he's good. And in the context of what we're talking about, I'm going to say he tastes better than those other things. And if these things, if you're not seeing this rest, if you're like not in that rest in your life, then you may not know the ways of the Lord. And one of the ways of the Lord is he satisfies. So if right now, like something is being taken away and it's really wrecking your world and you can't get back up again, I'm extending to you, there is a treasure that's better than what you lost. There's something that's more satisfying than what you lost. I want us to look at um, Matthew 13. I, just, I want us to see this here. This idea of treasuring, this idea of value, this idea of satisfaction. <clears throat> and I want you guys to just take my word for it. I, it's here, and I think it's really, really cool. All right, 44 through 46. The kingdom of heaven 
is like treasure hidden in a field which a man found and covered up. Then in his joy, he goes and he sells all that he has and he buys that field. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant in search of fine pearls who on finding one pearl of great value went and sold all that he had and bought it. We're going to look at this passage in a second, but one of the Psalms says your love is better than life. That's everything. He's better. These guys in this parable sold everything to get the treasure in the field. That one treasure was greater than anything they'd ever known, anything they'd ever had. It was more satisfying. In their joy, they sold everything they had. Their joy. It wasn't begrudgingly, oh, I guess I'll like, give this up for God. Take it. I got Jesus. Who cares? I've got the treasure that beats all treasure. And what I want to extend to you, I'm not, I don't want you to walk away from this feeling guilty. I want you to feel encouraged that there's a promise in here, that there's a treasure that's greater than anything you've ever known. And if that treasure has not changed your life, if seeing Jesus and his infinite worth and his infinite love and his infinite provision for you has not changed the very essence of your being, there's more to see. If you have tasted a little bit of that and you do have faith because you've tasted the satisfaction that Jesus is, him, not his gifts, him, there's more because the word infinite implies that we cannot reach the end of it. So if you're a believer and you have tasted it, do not sit still. There's more. There's more treasure. And it's super exciting. Okay, I'm going to just read these. I want everybody to just kind of hang out for a second. Okay, don't, don't read it. And if you want the references, come and ask me later. I just want everybody to listen. Okay, because in the Psalms, we get some really vivid language of this idea of being satisfied in Jesus above everything else. Okay, yes. Okay, so you guys ready? Okay. You make known to me the path of life. In your, pre in your presence, there is fullness of joy. Fullness. Like your joy capacity is full. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. Right now. There's another one. For our heart is glad in him because we trust in his holy name. Then I will go to the altar of God, to God my exceeding joy, and I will praise you with the lyre, O God, my God. I have trusted in your steadfast love. My heart shall rejoice in your salvation. They feast, they feast on the abundance of your house, and you give them drink from the river of your delights. For with you is the fountain of life. In your light we see, do we see light? Oh God, you are my God. Earnestly I seek you. My soul thirsts for you. My flesh faints for you as in a dry and weary land where there is no water. So I've looked upon you in the sanctuary, beholding your power and glory because your steadfast love is better than life. My lips will praise you. But may all who seek you rejoice and be glad in you. May those who love your salvation say continually, Great is the Lord. Whom have I in heaven but you? What's waiting for us in heaven? Jesus. How about all this other? Yeah, okay, whatever. Jesus is going to be there. Who cares? Jesus. And there's nothing on earth that I desire besides you. 
My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. Satisfy us in the morning with your steadfast love so that we may rejoice and be glad all our days. Blessed is the one you choose and bring near to dwell in your courts. You shall be satisfied with the goodness of your house, the holiness of your temple. There is an intimacy with Jesus that we have promised here that changes everything. Okay? If your heart does not love the Lord, if your language does not, like if the heart, if the language of your heart does not reflect these things, rejoicing and satisfaction and joy and gladness, even in the face of sorrows, Paul, shipwrecked, stoned to not mostly dead. Okay, horrible things. He considers everything a loss compared to knowing Jesus. He boasts in his weaknesses and those trials and those horrible, horrible things because he knows when that happens, when he's weak, he's strong because he's in Jesus and he's satisfied in Christ. What I'm offering to you is impossible. This whole sermon, all these things that are promised, cannot happen. You cannot experience joy. That's, that, that doesn't make sense. It doesn't make sense that you can have just been stoned almost to death and walk away rejoicing. It doesn't make sense that Paul and Silas, were, they're whipped, bareback, whipped, bleeding, half naked in a cold prison cell, dank, wet, on the floor. They're singing praises, not just like, Kumbaya, my Lord. They were singing with joy. They were rejoicing that they were considered worthy of the name. Guys, it's not some like begrudging thing. And if for you in your relationship with Jesus, it's hard and it feels like work and it's begrudging, you're doing somebody else's job. It's impossible. You cannot enter this rest. You cannot love God on your own. You need God to come in and do a work to circumcise your heart. And what I think is really encouraging in all this, especially with everything we've been going through as a church, God gives us his word, his spirit inside of us to speak to us through the word, and he gives us trials. But here's where the rest kind of plays in. If you're satisfied in Jesus, and if he's cutting everything away, so you can have this kind of heart that rejoices in God, that literally can say, God, your love is better than life. And I just lost everything. <laughs> You're still on top because you still got what's better and they can't touch it. They can't. Nobody can. The devil can't. You've got Jesus. That's where the rest is, guys. When God awakens our hearts to not just see, and I think this is cool. One of the, I've been reading a lot of John Piper and his big thing is the glory of God, but his big thing is, the glory of God is manifest in so many different ways. But here's the thing. 2 Corinthians 3.18, all of us beholding the glory are transformed, right? The devil beholds the glory of God. The devil was in heaven, right? And Paul has that, I think it's Paul, he says, you know, good for you, even, or maybe it's James. Good for you, you believe those things. So does the devil, demon child. Like... <laughs> 
God wants to awaken our hearts to not just see the glory of God, his infinite worth, his infinite love. He wants us to be able to treasure it supremely, supremely, above all else. And he wants to give us hearts, give us hearts. They can say, yeah, I sold everything. Yeah, Jesus, whatever. Like they took it all. I have no earthly possessions. I'm half naked. I don't even have my health. I'm about to die. Yes, I get to come to be with you so soon. I'm right there. Or maybe you're halfway there and you just lost all your stuff and all these relationships are really important to you, but you have your health and you've got the other half of your clothes. You're still rejoicing because you still have Jesus and it doesn't matter. You are so satisfied in him. Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger. Whoever believes in me shall never thirst. James kind of gets at this. Why are you quarreling? Where to read this on Saturday? Why, why are you quarreling? Because you're not, you don't have what you want. You don't have what you want because you don't ask. And when you do ask, you're asking for the wrong things. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger. Whoever believes in me shall never thirst. And he says later, so I say to you, ask and keep on asking and it will be given to you. Seek and keep on seeking and you will find. Knock and keep on knocking and the door will be opened to you. Does anybody want this rest? Does anybody want this treasure? Does anybody want the satisfaction that we can find in Jesus. I feel like I'm just starting to taste some of this and it's wrecking my world in the best way possible. It's blowing my mind and it's so exciting. I'm going to keep on seeking though. I'm going to keep on knocking and I'm going to keep on asking because I want more. I just want more Jesus. And I want him to keep cutting stuff away because if there's more stuff that's hanging on that I've got my treasure in, I, I don't want that. That stuff holds me down. That stuff makes me work for it. That stuff makes me strive and that stuff makes me worry and anxious because I have to protect these treasures. I have a treasure that's kept for me in heaven that I get access to by the Holy Spirit living inside of me right now. And I serve a God that can circumcise my heart so that I love him and a God that can work in my heart so I can have faith, which is to see and to treasure, taste and see and be satisfied in all that God is for me in Jesus. Jesus.